0: it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation and the Story podcast, where you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I'm your host, Chris Moore. If you enjoy what you hear today, please write a review on iTunes so we can keep growing. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. For my 14th episode, I sat down with the brilliant Cameron Desen Hammond a writer and musician living in Houston, Texas. Her essays, poems, and stories have appeared in Guernica, The Rumpus, Ecotone, Houston Chronicle, The Butter, Nylon, The Literary Review, Brevity's Nonfiction Blog, Columbia Poetry Review, and elsewhere. She earned an MFA from Seattle Pacific University. Cameron is also the host of the ish podcast conversations from the liminal spaces of life. And she's the co-founder of the Houston based literary reading series, the slant. This is my body. A memoir of religious and romantic obsession is her first book. So the
1: question is, why do I write? I write because it makes me feel better. (laughs) And I'm realizing in the last couple of weeks of not writing how true that is um, because I don't feel good right now. And I feel like at least part of that is that I'm, I feel completely unable to write. Um, So that's just kind of on the body level. That's, that's why it's a, it, it lessens my anxiety. When I uh, was in grad school, I did a low res MFA. So we had to figure out how to make work and turn work in every couple of weeks and so that started a clock with me that i found that after the program was over if i didn't if i wasn't following a similar schedule i was getting like anxiety spikes it was like a memory of you know like something is due so it was actually really kind of helpful to keep me on track so i've i've since called it like you know the terror of not writing is greater than the terror of writing um, Interesting. And that seems to be what motivates me <laughs> the lesser terror or the greater terror, right? What, what city are you in?
0: Houston. Houston, that's right. Mm-hmm. So, with the uh, um, kind of lockdown stuff with COVID, you said you're finding it difficult to be creative. Oh, yeah. Why do you think? I think
1: there's an assumption that maybe I'm, I alone am operating on that, what I might write, the story I might write, what I might share for my life will be at least interesting enough to enough people that it would be worth writing, right? Like we all, up until now, we've all had such varied lives. And and we still have varied lives, but I feel like right now what's strange is that we're all sort of in this similar condition of being locked down in our apartments. So it's like, if I write about my day, I'm like, what, why (laughs) would anyone, like, I'm, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Like, why would I, we're all going through the same thing. So it's like, I don't know. That's just one thing that kind of occurred to me. I think that it's actually probably more honestly an extension of like a stuck that I was in before, um, and allegedly working on the next book, which is a, which is a um, connection, it's a collection of essays. Um, and it just feels like now, like this entire project, like everything will have to change, right? Like everything, like this, in light of this, everything will have to change. So I don't really know how to work on it because I don't know what to say about how life has changed so dramatically in the last two weeks, like, or how to spread that through the project that I was working on. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I have thought about writing, like, my experience of this lockdown situation. But yeah, yeah like, we're all probably doing pretty much the same yeah. fucking thing. I know. Um, I and mean, that doesn't mean it's not
1: valuable. Like I'm, I'm interested in hearing your experience. Your experience is different than mine. But I guess when I think of writing my own, I, that's what I kind of default to, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. All right. So your book, "This Is My Body," is a memoir of religious and romantic obsession. <laughs> um, how would you describe it? Oh, um, <laughs> I should
1: be able to answer that quite, quite robustly, shouldn't I? But. Uh. Um, my book is about, I think primarily about identity, um, sort of, you know, in the, in the short, you know, log line version. Um, it's a conversion and deconversion story. I was born into an irreligious, secular, uh, half Jewish family. I was always obsessed with religion as a kid growing up in New York and New Jersey. And in my mid twenties, I had a radical conversion to evangelical Christianity in Brooklyn, of all places, uh, and this was right after 9-11, and I decided that I needed to change everything about myself and my life, and I moved from Brooklyn to Houston, Texas, where I started a career as a worship leader, um, a music and band leader inside evangelical churches. Um, I sort of pushed aside all of the liberal politics I was raised with and kept quiet about a lot of things I shouldn't, um, and came to a point of crisis in my 30s where I realized that I didn't believe in this system that I had built my life around and even more so I didn't believe in the patriarchal church that I had built my life around um, and I needed to sort of take it all apart and see what was left. Um, And at the same time, I was going through a crisis in my marriage. Um, I thought I was in love with someone else. Um, My marriage was, was falling apart and... Um, I realized that there had been a connection between the way I saw romantic love and the way I thought of um, agape or God's love, religious love. Um, And so when I found that link, um, just as a writer, I knew I wanted to explore it. And so I think the book hopefully explores the link between religious and romantic love, feminism, faith, and uh,
0: identity. Yeah. Um, How would you kind of describe your relationship to religion or to God now uh
1: I try I really try to have a relationship to a God of my own understanding which is always shifting um I am a practicing Episcopalian um still I became an Episcopalian at the end of the writing of the book and um I'm still an Episcopalian and and really what that means is is that I'm sort of stubborn enough to cling to the branch of Protestant Christianity that I can abide by and can deal with and find inspiration through. The Episcopal Church is progressive, you know, politically and affirms and elevates women and the LGBTQ community. You know, it could be better on all of those fronts, yeah. um, but it, it's, it's where I have made my home and, and I stay But it, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't believe the way I used to believe. I don't, I'm not interested in orthodoxy, um, in the way that I was before. Um, and my, my, my spiritual and religious life today, like looks like a mixture of sort of being a right to Episcopalian and a bit of a pagan witch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, which is sort of like what I was doing before I became a Christian anyway, and you know, I'm just finding ways back to that person that I was that, you know, read tarot cards and lit candles and, um, and trying to integrate it with, um, the Christianity that I practice.
0: Yeah. Cool. Um, I recently got my first tarot deck ever actually. All right. So that's been kind and, of fun. And you
1: have a, you have a history with, with the church a bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's where I was going. You're, um, your book kind of opens with the um, scene of the baptism and the, um, I I had to laugh at myself because (laughs) as I'm reading your book, I'm like thinking through my own religious and Christian history, which I don't like to do very often. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. But it was good. And like I told you, I went down like a rabbit hole of Christian music. From from like that time in my life, it was just very surreal. But I was baptized probably three different times with three different youth groups or churches. And my history is similar to yours, but I was a bit younger. My mother's brother, my uncle is actually a pastor in like an evangelical church. Well, he broke off from the church and started his own church with some folks that I guess, I'm not sure what happened still, but there was some type of falling out within the leadership. And so he branched off and started his own church, but I was in his youth group for many years and then his church. And then I moved to the church in my town and then a church of Christ. And Mm -hmm. ultimately when I was 19, I realized that I was gay and I started drinking and like all, all this really repressed identity stuff came to the surface. Um, so, anyway, a friend of mine that I had kind of helped to convert and bring into the church mm-hmm. told, told um, one of the leaders that, you know, I was, you know, dealing with my sexuality and I might be gay and blah, blah, blah. So, a small panel of male elders sat me down and basically said, You need to choose. Between women and the church. So effectively kicked me out of the church. Jesus, I'm sorry. Uh yeah. How do you reconcile, like, the idea of God with the actions of his believers? And I'm thinking of that pastor that sexually assaulted you as well. Mm-hmm. Like, how did... I don't know. But for me, since then, I've moved away from Christianity because I don't know, there was some, some scene in your book where you're after that happened and your husband was like, this whole thing is just bullshit. It's all bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's kind of yeah. how I feel. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I don't reconcile my idea of God and the, the church, Um, which is a distinction that I think, funny enough is, is part of what brought me into the church early on. I, there is a scene in the beginning of the book when I'm meeting with a a woman who ended up baptizing me and ended up sort of mentoring me into the church who, who, you know, was the person who answered my questions. And my question was like, how can the, you know, how can the church be, how can God be good if the, if his followers are so horrible? Right. And I mean, there's no end to examples of that. And she said to me, God is not the church. And, and meaning that people are people and people are, will fuck up all day, every day. And that was enough for me back then, you know, to sort of like, you know, you know, quiet my, my questions and I didn't have to face what you faced, you know, had I, I would have had a different story. I think, you know, I think that now I, you know, I just, I, my, my question, I think the question that haunts me or keeps me up at night is like, is not, you know, it, it is God and the church the same or the people in the church representing God on earth? Because I don't think they are. I mean, I think that we try and, and I think people, some people do a beautiful job of reflecting like this idea of unconditional love or God's love. But I think that most, most of the time when we have organized structures like the church, the the power attracts sort of the worst kind of often it can attract sort of the worst kind of person who sees speaking for God as a way to gain power and to manipulate and and all of that. Um, So like, yeah, I, I try to keep them separate. I mean, I, I had, you know, like, I, I guess what I'm sort of talking in circles, but the thing that keeps me up up at night is, is the thing itself broken because of the way it's, you know, Christianity's followers have, have abused and manipulated in the name of right. You know, what is the thing itself is sort of like, my question like my intellectual question what i what i ask myself or you know late at night (laughs) i can't sleep you know i don't know i i don't i don't have the answer to that i'm not like i said like my practice of christianity is not orthodox um you know i'm not following along to the letter as an evangelical would um so I'm le- like, I'm less reliant on the thing itself than I was before. The question of, so like, and I talk about this, I, I reference an Adrian Rich poem in the book and talk about it a little bit. The, the, the Adrian Rich poem, famous poem, Diving Into the Wreck, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's easy to forget what we came for, the myth and not the story of the myth, or the wreck and not the story of the wreck, sorry, the thing itself and not the myth, right? Mm, so, yeah. so for me, the, the church is the myth, and the thing itself is God. And so okay. I came to the church for the thing itself. Um, and that line, it's easy to forget what we came for, like couldn't resonate with me more because that is, has been my experience or was my experience. Like I didn't come to be a part of a human system and, you know, uphold the powerful in the process and give over my power and my rights. Like I right. came in pursuit of this ephemeral, elusive God. And that remains what I am in pursuit of. Um, But I I don't believe that that pursuit ends in Christianity anymore, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mentioned to you yesterday, I think. I don't know, because all the days are blurring together. (laughs) Um, (laughs) the docu series the story of god with morgan freeman you have to watch yeah, that. i will i will i will watch it <laughs> but he's traveling all around the world talking to everyone from leaders to people you know on the sh- practicing hindus on the street in india and trying to figure out you know all these different ideas of god as well as the history there and yeah for me god is still the thing but i agree it doesn't end at Christianity so yeah. where does your idea of God manifest from
1: um I mean like I said it's kind of always changing you know these days I um I, I've spent some time in 12step recovery and I write about that a bit that opened me up to the idea of the higher power which is sort of another name for God right higher power is what is, is the way that 12step recovery allows everyone's idea of God into the rooms hopefully. So when I opened that door, you know, it allows me to think of God as being more than like father, son, Holy spirit, right? Like, like, what if God is all the teachers? What if God is all the higher powers? Um, and my friend fee who I write about a good deal in this book, who is a homeo Irish homeopath. Um, you know, when I, I visited her like right at the beginning of this whole crazy COVID-19 thing. And, and we talked about praying, to the the hot praying and inviting all of the higher powers in, you know, and for her at that moment, it was St. Bridget. It was Mary. It was, you know, God, the mother, it was God, the father, you know? So it's just like, whatever, (laughs) whatever you need, I think is whatever I need. I mean, so since this whole thing started, I have been praying. I mean, I'm a, I'm terrible at praying. I've traditionally (laughs) been crap at it. And (laughs) like since this whole thing started because i had that meeting with Fee and we talked about like lighting a white candle and envisioning white light like i've been actually doing this every night which i think is helping to keep me in a bit of sanity and a bit of schedule but like yeah i'm inviting all all, all the all the higher powers in yeah. like you know, and, and, and I have learned that like, I need God, the mother sometimes, mo- you know, more than any of the other teachers. And sometimes I need God, the father, and sometimes I need this Holy spirit. And sometimes I need St. Bridget and sometimes I need mother earth or whatever it is. You know, I mean this, I mean, I sound like a nutcase, but <laughs> you know,
0: it's just, I don't think so. <laughs> Do you mean, it- oh, Do you think, I mean, are these ideas, ideas that help you Mm -hmm. as a human or do you believe, you know, life after death, heaven, like, is this an absolute truth or is this a, in a way story that helps?
1: No, I mean, this is a story that helps. I I don't know what happens after death and really no one does, right? You know, we have our best guesses, but... It's a story that helps right now, and I'm, you know, and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to hold it loosely and be fluid with it. I think we need belief. I, you know, it's funny because I've been thinking about this so much. Like, we really are in an age of belief, in the sense of, you know, scientific data is up for belief. Like people discuss like science as though there is an option to not believe it. Right. right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like this whole era of Trump and fake news and all that it's, you hear people say, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that over and over and over again. And I was thinking about that the other day, like we really are in an age of belief, like where belief has become more powerful than knowledge. Yeah. Um which is terrifying and
0: fascinating. Um, it feels like a rewind, right? Right, <laughs> like it does. You know, but, well, even then, like you know, when we thought the Earth was flat, <laughs> we still, you know, tried to prove that with science, and then you know, our minds were changed, and now here we are again. People are like, I don't believe the Earth is round. I don't believe in climate change. It's yeah bizarre I do understand, like <sighs> I kind of understand the thought process behind it, like, kind of like a a mistrust you know of the powers that be yeah on this planet, which is you know i'm I know they're not honest, but I mean I think it's taken too <laughs> too far to an extreme,
1: yeah, no, I agree i I'm, I think I mean a deep distrust of of Power, leadership, all of it, like that—that's what I think is coming up for me right now. Which was already there, right, because of what yeah. I've gone through with putting all of my hope in this religious system of leadership, and you know, realizing that it was not trustworthy. Um, but but this is happening for me on such a large scale, um, and I think for a lot of people, you know, just—and it's not just the president, but it's like who, you know, who are we supposed to be? listening to right. you know i'm I'm listening i'm trying to listen to scientists um
0: and i hope everyone else does too all right uh, and there's so much information yeah yeah <laughs> um it's that's an interesting connection to the church thing because you know one thing i had written down here was i was part of a church of christ for i don't know at least a year mm-hmm I think more, it's kind of blurry. <laughs> um, And a few years ago, yeah, that was when I was in my mid-teens. So a few years ago, I found out that the youth pastor there, that I had, him and his wife had a house right next to the church. We spent hours and days there. We did Bible studies there, game nights there, everything you can imagine. And I just learned that he was convicted of, basically carrying on a sexual relationship with one of the girls in the youth group and went to jail wow so it's like even though that wasn't me it's still fucking traumatic it's like yeah, you think this was you think this was like a genuine person and a genuine like it's so crazy it is it's devastating
1: i mean i th- that's kind of the the thing that really just rocked me like when i was i think I, we were revising this book when um i i got it's not i don't write about it in the book but i got a threatening letter at my job at the church that i work at um because i had shared it was a threatening anonymous letter because i had shared um an uh, a court record online about a music minister in Houston who had been um a, who had been accused of like sexual assault with a young boy who was in his choir and someone had shared this court record with me. And I was like, could this be the same person that I know that I've worked with? And I I shared it in a Facebook thread. And a week later I got a threatening letter saying like, you know, they would have my job and, you know, all of these, all of these things. Um, And, you know, happily, luckily my, the priest I worked for was like, you know, we're not going to, I mean, don't like, please calm down. Like there's no way that you're going to lose your job over this. We don't, you know, yeah. but, but it was really scary. And, and I had this, this like awareness that, you know, I used to think that it was the good, like good people or people who wanted to be good and wanted to be better and do better that were attracted to the church. Like that, that wanted to be a part of a community that was sort of focused on, on goodness and love and help. Um, and helping people, you know, kind of what you describe, like with your youth group, like making kids feel at home and creating community and all those things. And and after I got that letter, I just thought, like, you know, could could it actually be the opposite of that? You know, that that at least in equal measure, the church attracts people who are looking for a place to hide their predation mm. um, because it covers up predation with goodness. Oh,
0: um, shit.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that that is devastating. You know, I mean, like you said, like what, when you hear about someone you trust or trusted harming someone else in that way, like it just, I mean, yeah. And for me, it just was like a light bulb went off, you know, like that how many layers, I mean, this, this letter that I got came from someone who told me like, of all of their power and all of their financial and social power in the community to bring harm to me and how like this person, like if I didn't shut up, essentially like this person would ruin me and have my job and et cetera, et cetera. And talked about like, I mean, and was really terrible at being anonymous because it it was fairly easy to figure out who this person was. But, but because I got that information about this person's social status and financial and economic position, I was like, oh, so... So this is like the layers of wealth and privilege that cover up, you know, evil, essentially. I mean, if we believe that there is evil, I mean, that's what that's what it is. It's a system that like rushes to protect its own, even when, especially when, you know, that, you know, someone is, is a predator, you know? And that, that's what I saw. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like we, I think that's pretty obvious, like with the history of, of the church. I mean, we have all kinds of, you know, the history, uh, you know, of, of Protestant church and the Catholic church, like mm-hmm. all of this scandal and all you know, and it's kind of like humdrum, like, oh yeah, you know, like in the medieval ages, like, you know, I mean, but, but it's still happening. Like it's still happening. Every day. Every fucking day.
0: Yeah. So that's that's that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that. I have never thought of that, of that idea that, you know, predators might be drawn to the church because it is a place, you know, to hide that. Oh, my God, that's sick.
1: It makes a sick kind of sense, though, you know, right? Oh, so.
0: yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, I think it also does attract people who genuinely want to do good and want to love people also.
0: Yeah, me too. No, I mean, one of the only ways I can say I know that's true is because I know that it was true for me. Yeah. I don't know how much I trust. I don't know. Like to have been so close for so long with that youth pastor or yeah. the yeah. men that were basically like, you know, God or women. Yeah. I don't know I that I'd be surprised by anything. <laughs> to yeah. Be yeah. And it's crazy too how fast, they seem to turn on me. Like I was young. Um, in the last church I was in, I was actually part of a, like, uh, we kind of all lived together, like a mini, not a cultish commune or anything, but kind of a commune. I did a lot of work for them and I was really at that age, like really radical. Like I wanted to. Yep. Yeah. Build, you know i wanted to build a one a a prayer shed that was just big enough for me and myself and and just go into it and pray all day like just all this really like ascetic stuff yep 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 you think that people know you and respect you and care about you and then this one thing yep comes up and it's like no all over yeah all right let's just let's go back to craft and writing. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. It jumps back and forth in time correct, correct. <laughs> How did you do that so beautifully and seamlessly? How'd you make those decisions?
1: I mean, the decision was made early on. It was not beautifully and seamlessly executed. It was, it was, I thank you for using beautiful and seamless. It was hammered out through, I think it was two and a half years. I mean, really the whole book was edited over two and a half years. So it was a lot of really great um, editorial direction and revision from my editor, Beth Staples um, at Lookout Books. But as far as the idea of a jump around in time, I, 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 That came from the first draft and I wanted to, I mean, I am interested in work that plays with time. I am a teacher of creative writing and I know that, you know, a linear memoir is really going to work only for a celebrity. (laughs) <laughs> you know, or someone who is depicting like very dramatic circumstances, you know, like perhaps an educated kind right. of memoir. So I I used a book called The Art of Time and Memoir by Sven, Sven Burkertz, which is a part of the um, The Art of series and uh, had a couple of conversations with my friend Lacey Johnson when I was first like, you know, formulating, you know, how am I going to write this thing? And we talked about Lacey and I talked about this idea of time as like a like a laundry line, you know, strung between two points, the, you know, the the now and the end of now. So like the book starts in 2015 and ends in 2017, but it off the laundry line hangs, um, you know, deep dives into the past, but only past scenes or situations that are directly relevant to that first timeline, right? I mean, your listeners can't see me, but I'm holding up my fingers <laughs> like <laughs> like a yeah, like yeah. laundry line. So like 2015 to 2017 2001, 2008 um, 2009 I believe 2012 are those things that are hanging off that line and that jump back uh, and and in that art of time and memoir he references I can't think of who the original person was who said this but basically like events that argue for their importance are included not events that happened they don't get included because they happened they are they the scenes from the past that I include that I include, are directly relevant to the present timeline.
0: Oh, this is really helpful. I No one's ever put it that way. I have the first draft of my memoir done and I refuse to go back to it. Since <laughs> I just, I'm like, no, I don't want to deal with it. Like, uh, and that idea of the clothesline and uh, probably, okay, so you're talking about the linear memoir. And that's how my first draft is written because it starts with, an accident that I had when I was thirteen. So mm-hmm. that was like 1998. So I mm-hmm. guess I would consider that the first, the beginning of the clothesline. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I think about it, I don't know where the end is. Right. <laughs> Maybe it's 2020. I don't know. Is that too long? It feels like I'm trying to put too much. Yep. In and you said, yep. like you said, if it argues for its importance, that's why yep. it should go in. Yep. It's so hard.
1: I know it is so hard. It is. You know, I think that the present timeline ha- is better served from a shorter period of time. Like, you know, like you can go back as far as you need to, but you're always coming back to like a uh. two to five years or, or whatever. I mean, you know, this is not going to work for everyone, but you know, but this conversation, a couple of conversations I had with Lacey, like gave me this visual image that allowed me to see, like the pre- my present conflict, which was the crisis in my marriage, right? It be had a beginning, which is the first scene where I'm at a funeral and getting a text message from a man who's not my husband and all the things are falling apart, you know, to the, to the resolution of those things, right? So 2015 to 2017, or at least the sort of temporary resolution of those things, a uh, place yeah. of peace. That was like sort of timeline A, right? But like the reason I found myself here was... 2001 2008 2009 2012 you see what i'm saying
0: yeah it's hard for me to figure out what the fuck my main main thread is because there's all these ideas like abandonment and self-love they're giant and abstract you know and i have my accident which was like a jumping off point for a lot of trauma in my life and but i also have like this alcoholism thread and this toxic relationships thread. So I don't, I guess what I'm hearing is it might serve me to find a main timeline. Mm-hmm. How do I do yeah. that? And I think one of
1: the biggest challenges is, is, is figuring out when the thing ends. Like, it's like, what exactly like it's 1998 to 2020 to 2015. Like, you know, that is really one of one of the biggest challenges. Like, when does it cut off? But I mean, I, I like I like a present tense start and then going back and showing me why we're here like that. Just at least that's what worked for that, you know, my last book and God knows what will happen for the next book, but like a crisis that is imminent or very recent, you know, how it resolves or at least where we leave it. Yours
0: ends 2017 or oh, that's the epilogue does that really count yeah epilogue okay. counts. all <laughs> right um so was 2017 your actual present as you were writing it
1: yes which is not normal I don't think yeah okay. I mean, I was yeah like I was writing it as it was happening I don't know I the whole thing yeah it that was is. yeah like how the hell did that how did we do that um, yeah, it, it it was tough. But, you know, like, for example, in the first draft, my father was still alive when I finished the first draft. I finished the first draft in January of 20. I believe it was January of 2017. So the epilogue, I did not have the epilogue because the epilogue is from the end of 2017. I did not have the last chapter, which is from the end of 2017. Right. So like, I, I mean, the first draft finished, and then my life kept going. And I figured that I figured out that I needed to expand the goalposts a little bit and oh, yeah. and include those kinds of resolutions or those that the ends of those threads because they had they had come to some kind of an end, you know. Yeah. So but yeah, that was that was a tough decision. I think that is that is one of the hardest things about structuring a longer work, you know, a memoir. A length memoir.
0: Oh man. So how long did you know, all said and done, how long did you spend on this project?
1: Um I started the writing of this book and the writing of the book proposal right after I came home from the Tin House Writers Workshop, which was August of 2016. So I was drafting, I was writing a proposal for an essay collection, I thought. And as I wrote the proposal, I realized that I was writing a proposal for a book that I had not yet written, because I found myself to be uninterested in an essay collection at that time. Yeah. So I wrote the proposal, I was querying agents, and I was writing the book kind of all at the same time. So from... August of 16 to January of 17 was the the writing of it. It was fast, but then from we sold it. So I finished it in January of 17. We sold it at the end of that year in December of 10 of December of of 2017. So that whole whatever 11 months I was revising it, and then from 17 it came out in August of 19. So
0: yeah,
1: I, math is not my thing, but <laughs>
0: three years for I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well uh, now i've now my brain's going with this t- timeline thing um I do you know Carrie O'Driscoll? She was one of my guests, but she wrote the book "Truth," uh the Memoir Truth has a different shape, and uh it's in first person present from childhood, which okay. so is mine um you know my first draft at least mhm. And I just feel that I need to totally do away with all of that. <laughs> like, really. With Present tense? Yeah. Like, so I'm telling the story as though I'm 12. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So
1: that was funny. So uh, that was a funny thing with my my book. I originally had the present tense chapters in present tense, right? The 2015 to 2017 and the past chapters in past tense. Yeah. But that was a shit show. That's, that's so, so hard. We ended up realizing it was a shit show. My brilliant editor realized, and we decided that I had to go back and make everything present tense. Everything present. So the whole book is present is, is written in present tense now, even the past chapters. Yeah. Yep. So that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I. I think you know. I think there's like creative ambitions that one has at the start of any project. Like this is going to be written out of time. And there's going to be, there's going to be a second person thread of flash essays woven through the, and truly originally my book had a thread of second person flash essays
0: woven through
1: and all these like grad school creative writing things. Yeah, exactly. It's Um,
0: like, it's like my manuscripts, like a portfolio, like a, yeah, like a portfolio of grad school. Right. Yeah.
1: Like, Oh, look, I, This here's a fun trick.
0: Like you know, (laughs) let's do
1: this. You know, at the time, like I didn't think of it that way. I didn't think I didn't think of it in as a grad school portfolio, (laughs) but um but as the revision, like I was so lucky to have such a great editor who was very involved and focused and uh, you know, and you know, to her credit, she never said like, cut the second person (laughs) flash essays. But by the you know, I had gone through we had gone through such such rigorous, you know. Revision that I like myself was like now in the mindset of you know if it's not great cut it like what why is it there you know and so I just I myself decided like to cut some of those grad school tricks including the second person <laughs> class essays.
0: I, um, have one, I have one one second person essay in there. That's funny. <laughs>
1: which is not to say that they're not. I mean, you know, like I love second person. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. like, it can be great. Yeah. It's not that it's there's a hard and fast rule, but it's tricky. It's tricky.
0: Does there ever come, I don't think I've ever asked anyone this, does there come a point where you are where you feel like the book is done? Like, this is right, this is how it should be.
1: Very early on in the process, and I'm always, I was wrong. <laughs> so when I think, this is done, good job, you. <laughs> it's like the furthest from done it will ever be, possibly. You know, I, I read it now, I mean, for the most part, I don't do this very often, but I'll read it now and I'll be like, oh, shit. Should have <laughs> fixed that.
0: I should have changed that. You
1: know, like it's never done. Yeah, I mean, it's like with with music, like with recording music, like you just you have to walk away.
0: Yeah. It has to do, de- you have to decide that it's done. Exactly. Okay. Well, um, so you talked a little bit about your next project is a collection of essays. I mean, in theory, they're imaginary, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> is there like a, a plan? A,
1: a there's a plan. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a plan, there's a theme. I mean, I'm working on the book proposal now. I have two essays quote unquote air quotes you again your listeners can't hear me see me air quoting but (laughs) i have two of them done i have an outline you know for what i for for i think nine essays or seven i don't even know i'm afraid to open the document um but but you know i yeah i just don't know what i don't know what 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 this project will look like um you know on the other side of this crisis we find ourselves in
0: yeah It's interesting. I I tend to have this unspoken idea that I have to get everything into my first book. It's the only book. (laughs) But like, it's not. So I can think about, you know, what is this project specifically? Yeah. Um, I think it's
1: really important to remind yourself of that. And it's helpful to me to hear you say that because I, you know, I I mean, I do the same thing. Like, I'm just like, oh, shit. Was this it?
0: Not for you. (laughs) <laughs> well, not uh, for you? <laughs> uh, I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. now after talking to you, I'm, I'm like, man, this I feel better and worse about it because now I'm like I this could go in so many different directions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think
1: like the 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 tighter, the tighter the focus, you know, sort of the easier it is to like conceptualize the project and finish it, right. And that's like what we want is we want to get through. the, the the first draft of the first book, because then you have learned how to do it in theory, at least, you know, I'm telling myself this, but, (laughs) um, but you know, like, so, you know, with my, with my students, like I, I talk about this idea of, of the lens that determines what makes it in and what makes it out of the book. And if the lens is for me, feminism, misogyny, sexual desire, religious desire, like then a whole bunch of events that are very, very sexy and easy to dramatize, you know, my sacred cows get cut out of the, of the document, get cut out of the manuscript. They don't make it in no matter mm-hmm. how great they are. Right. No matter t- how many times I've revised that fucking chapter, it's getting cut. If it isn't serving the the lens, like if it isn't going to, you know, illuminate kind of like the, the focus. Yeah. Um and I just think feel like narrowing and winnowing and focusing, it 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 helps. It helped me to write a first draft that was like two hundred and thirty-seven pages. My book ended up being hundred and eighty seven pages, right? So I cut a chapter, I cut those second person essays.
0: Yeah. You know, it doesn't
1: have to be long. Right. You know? in fact it's better if it's not
0: you know yeah, well I mean there's just like a standard length memoir I feel like
1: it's a little I think it's a little short I mean I think it's standard now maybe but like maybe it's a pretty, little I mean, you can read the thing in like three hours <laughs> I'm told <laughs> which I think is great you know like I think that's like a something that is digestible you know like a 400 page memoir is a little <laughs> harder to
0: do you see what I'm saying yeah that's like a An autobiography at that point that's right yeah yeah exactly well Um, that actually does that does it like frees you up if I think about you know the I'm really on this clothesline Mm -hmm. metaphor I wouldn't even start it at 1998 I would start it you know getting a DUI because I drank too much yep and flash back to this is why I drink so much bingo Boom. All right. (laughs) I ought to pay you for this.
1: (laughs) Oh, you are paying me. Thank you. You're paying me by inviting me on your podcast.
0: True. Was it scary to decide to write about, you know, the sexual assault stuff with the pastor? Because it's something I I think about, you know, obviously, including in my manuscript being basically excommunicated from the church by these men, (laughs) these older white men. Like, uh, were you worried about it?
1: Oh, God. Yeah. 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 I'm still worried about it. I mean, not as much as I was, but was I worried about it in terms of like retaliation, like fear of, um, Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I did, which was harder the, than publishing the book and including that bit was I reported this person. Um, well,
0: you did. I,
1: re- I reported him like two years after this assault took place when I was writing the book, because I was gripped with this, like fear of like, what if, he comes after me, you know, Mm -hmm. and I want to at least have a record of having reported it. So, so I did that, um, not to police, but to the governing body of this church. So I did that and that gave me, I mean, strangely gave me some peace and I did, we did all of the things we had to do legally, um, in terms of disguising identity. So that was, that was that.
0: Like, do you think these men even know that you wrote a book? Is it something that oh, would be? Yeah. Make- okay. they oh, don't no. definitely know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know that it would get back to my, you know, it probably would. I mean, I'm friends with. I mean, I think it's good to
1: tell yourself that it won't uh, when you're writing the book. I think, like, you know, and that's something I did constantly through this. Part. I was like, no one's going to read it. First, I was like, yeah, maybe I'll finish it. Maybe I won't you know, eh, maybe I'll get an agent. Maybe we'll sell it. Eh, Maybe it'll get published. No one will read it. No one will buy it. Like I, I like the whole time I've told myself, you know, to the point of like a little bit like ridiculous, like to a ridiculous point, um, in that I wasn't prepared. I wasn't as prepared as I could have been for the actual promoting and releasing of this book, because I genuinely was telling myself like every stage, like this is never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Um, (laughs) But that protected me, you know, and I, like, I say this all the time, but I'll say it again, you have to keep the audience out of the room as long as possible. I think even when the audience is, you know, the people who have wronged you and harmed you, it's not for him. It's not about him. It's not, it's about me. It's my story. Yeah. So, I mean, it's complicated. It's like interesting that we have to go to such lengths to protect the guilty, but, but we do. And I have, you know, to the best of my ability. Right. Right you know, while telling the truth about what happened.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it was fucking brave. So thank you thank for doing you. that. Thank you. Thanks
1: for having me. It was great to talk to you. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for doing this in, in the midst of this bizarre season we find ourselves in. It's it's really good to talk about writing. It's like this beautiful pause of normalcy.
0: Yeah, I know. So, and it's one thing we can do safely. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. As always, thank you for tuning in. You can purchase Cameron's memoir today over at IndieBound.org. Until next time, keep reading.